Afternoon, everyone. We've got two readings today. On the first one, if I can pull it out, is from 1 Peter, and that's chapter 1, starting at verse 3, going through to verse 13, going through to 9, even. I'll read the second one when we get to the second passage. I'll just give you a few moments to find it. So, yes, on the Church Bibles, that's 1,217. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And our second reading is from John, and that's chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Wrong again, Mr. 31. There we go. Again, 1,089 in the Church Bibles. So that's John 20, starting at 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you very much, Tom, for reading, and uh, really good to see you here today. Thank you for coming to support Ruby. I think she was very excited. There might be a bit of a crash later after the sugar upstairs, but really, really... Good to see so many of you here, and great if you're joining us online as well. Welcome to the service. Well, we're thinking uh, for the second week of, of two weeks today about the theme of hope. And I'm sure you agree that hope is certainly something we could use right now in our world. The question, as Jeremy said at the beginning, is this. How do I find a hope that can face anything? It's important, isn't it? How can we kind of get a hope? Is that 
Is that even gettable? A hope that can face anything that life throws at us. Because we know that that hope is essential for life and hope is essential for for human flourishing. We are hope-based creatures. Dr. Viktor Frankl was a a psychiatrist and and an Auschwitz um, survivor during World War II. And he saw firsthand the effect that losing hope has on people. So he writes of of a time between Christmas 1944 and New Year 1945. Uh, And and actually in that period, the death tolls in Auschwitz rose significantly. Why? Well, he writes that it was because many of those who were in Auschwitz thought that they would be home for Christmas. They, They hoped that that was the point that they would be home. And when that didn't happen, well, they lost hope and many of them succumbed to disease and died. And he says, we can't live without hope. I'll put it another way. Two, imagine two women. Two women, uh, the same age, the same educational background, the same temperament. And they're hired to work in the same factory. Um, so the same job on an assembly line. Not quite sure what they're doing, but this kind of thing all day long on the assembly line. And, uh, well, they're doing the identical things, identical conditions, uh, identical temperatures, identical lunch breaks that they have in this place. Yet there's one big difference. One of them is told that at the end of the year, they're going to be paid £12,000. And the other lady's told that at the end of the year, she's going to be paid £12 million for doing that job. And so these two women, they, they go out for a drink after work one day, and, uh, and imagine, how's work? How are you finding it? And one of them says, well, you can imagine which one. I'm finding it. It's really hard. It's boring. The, the hours just drag on. I'm not enjoying it at all. And the other one says, I quite like this job. I'm really, I'm having a good time. I go to job whistling with a spring in my stab. I love it. It's, it's great. See, their expectation of, of the future, what was to come, made all the difference in the present. What we believe about the future drastically shapes how we experience the present. We're hope-based creatures. But our hope's been shaken, hasn't it? Over the last year, 18 months. Strange, isn't it? A, a period of history where, in the West at least, we're more comfortable than ever in terms of living conditions. But yet many of us are filled with a sense of hopelessness. Maybe we look at the, the economy and we feel hopeless about that, or, or the environment. We had that prayed for, one of the kids, a minute ago. Maybe we look at the world and the, econ- the, the environment and we feel hopeless, or, or the pandemic, or, try to think of it, future pandemics. We just, we just feel hopeless in different ways. Filled with a hopelessness that that struggles to face all of life's challenges and all the things that are thrown at us. And this hopelessness, it leads some people to kind of retreat a bit from the world and maybe we try and numb ourselves with just another Netflix series just to kind of get through stuff. Maybe we turn to food, uh, maybe we turn to drink. Maybe, sadly for some people, we tragically turn to suicide with a feeling of hopelessness. So what we need is a hope. We need a robust hope. And so just for the next 
20 minutes, I'd love us to look at the hope that, that Christians themselves turn to. Not just to sort of make me feel warm and fuzzy on a Sunday inside kind of hope, but a watertight hope in life after death, eternal life, that is both optimistic and realistic, that is both hopeful and also rational. And that Christian hope, as we've heard in a few of the songs already, is pinned on an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you, if you're feeling a bit smart, you might think, it's not Easter, is it? It doesn't feel like it with the rain outside today. It's not Easter. Why are we talking about the resurrection? Well, get this. If, if Jesus truly rose from the grave, if that happens, it provides the basis for a life-transforming hope that gives us the resources to face anything that life throws at us in the here and now. And if there's a chance that that is true today, well, it's worth exploring, isn't it? Worth looking into. So I've mentioned the, the need um, for hope that we should see on the, on the next slide. Uh, the need for hope. And um, just for the rest of the time, I'd love us to look at the, the nature of that hope, where we'll be looking at that first reading from 1 Peter, and then turning uh, in the second part, uh, the evidence for that hope from John's Gospel. So the first uh, little thing then, the nature of future hope. And it's this, hope even in the face of death. So if we're engaging with this question, how do I find hope, uh, a hope that can face anything, we might as well go straight in the deep end and think about the greatest enemy that all of us face, that is death. We're so advanced, aren't we, in many ways, technologically, um, scientifically, yet we haven't found an answer to the biggest problem that we face. It doesn't stop us trying, though. I don't know if you read um, Jeff Bezos, the guy, Amazon guy. Um, it was in the, in the newspaper maybe just, just over a week or so ago that he is um, now pouring millions and millions of his many millions and billions of pounds into an AIDS reversal firm on a scientific quest for immortality. I, I guess his logic is, I've conquered space, kind of yeah, done that, took that one off. What's next? Eternal life. Let's do that. And, um, and that's what he's going for now. He, he sees death, he said, as a problem that can be solved. But many of us who, I don't know, some of us might have millions or billions here today. Uh, you have to tell me afterwards if you do. But most of us don't have that kind of money to play with to, to try and find a cure for death. And actually, we see death as, as what it is, a great enemy. And COVID has perhaps made us lock eyes with death in a way that many of us never have had to before. I recognise this isn't the most popular topic to be talking about. Um, I went to a wedding two weeks ago and uh, it was a really nice time I had with Charlotte at this wedding and we were on one of the tables at the reception, a bit of chat with people on the table and someone, I'm not quite sure why, brought up the topic of death. And nothing, you know, nothing at a wedding quite sort of kills the conversation like that. And everyone went a bit quiet and we sort of moved on to whatever was next. And you might be thinking, Nathan, at your daughter's own Thanksgiving, why are we talking about this, you might ask. Well, hopefully we'll see in a second. Typically, there's two approaches, I think, to, to death. Uh, humour. Woody Allen, Allen uh, famously said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Ha, 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 you maybe heard that one before. Humour. Or maybe a more common second strategy is a concerted disengagement with it. See, the common modern Western secular response to death is, is fairly unusual. 
in history. Throughout history, we've seen death as a, as a terror, something to be afraid of. Yet in the modern West, we, we sort of say, well, it's just, it's, not, it's just a circle of life, nothing really to fear. Uh, it's just natural. But that doesn't fit with what we feel about it, does it? With our experience? The story goes of a, a seven-year-old boy whose cousin um, sadly died. And, and after the funeral, the, the little boy, seven-year-old, went up to his, his mummy and said, where is she now? And um, as any of you who've got parents know, those sort of under-pressure moments, what am I going to say? And, and the mum responded and said, well, your cousin's gone back to the earth. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life. When you see the flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life that's fertilizing them. She was quite pleased with what she had come up with on the spot. But the little boy said, but I don't want her to be fertilizer. And he ran off in the other direction. See, the secular story says death is, is the end. That's it. End of, the, end of the story, circle of life. But I want to suggest that that doesn't sit right, does it? Like the kids, we should rage. Death is a horror. It's an enemy. And that's why I love Jesus in John chapter 11, uh, what the gospel we looked at uh, in that reading. He encounters death with, with a friend of his in chapter 11, a guy called Lazarus, who's died. And what does Jesus do as the crowds gather around, hoping that he might give some kind of explanation to it? Well, he doesn't say, well, it's natural. It's part of the circle of life. No, he, he weeps in the face of death. And he's angry in the face of death. It's not part of the original design. We're not supposed to age or go frail or to die. Now, something in us knows that that is right. Death is not perfectly natural. It's a horrible and evil thing, and it drains hope. And unlike the secular worldview, the Christian worldview says that, that it says death is not natural. Actually, it's the ultimate enemy. Let me just push this a tiny bit further. If death is the end, then what, we need to ask the question, what, what value do our lives have now? We love Ruby to bit, absolutely love her, and we're so grateful to God for her. But, but if death is the end one day for her, well, whether she's loved or not, whether she's achieved great things or not, death ultimately wins. It renders everything meaning, meaningless. It, it shatters hope. But, but the Christian claim is that death doesn't get the last word. It doesn't win, but there is hope in life after death. If you've lost that place in your Bible on page 1217 in 1 Peter, that first reading, 1217, verse 4 shows this. It says that the Christian has an inheritance there that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. See, the message of of Christianity is this really, that Jesus, the Son of God, uh, was sent into the world, that he shared in our humanity, that he died on a cross for our sin, and that he rose again on the third day from the grave. That's what it talks about in verse 4. Sorry, excuse me, verse 3. It says halfway through that verse, in his great mercy, that's God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. 
See, not only is Jesus' death paid for our sins, that's new birth, new life that we can experience, but more than that, more than that, we can say that we have living hope because his resurrection becomes our entryway to eternal life with him. It's natural to ask the question, maybe you say, well, how do we know that death isn't the end? Come on, Nathan, you're saying this, but you know, how do we know that? From our own experience, this side of death, we've got no idea. How can we tell? What we would need is someone more qualified than us. Someone who has experienced this death, uh, but come back again, come through the other side. Picture should come up here um, of a place, some of you might have visited it in South Africa. And um, it's, a, it's a place in South Africa called Cape Point. Maybe you've, Chris Dudley's probably sailed around it or something like that. Uh, Cape Point. And it's the most southwesterly point in the continent of, of Africa. And until 500 years ago, no European had ever gone beyond it and, and back again. Many had tried, uh, but many had died trying in the dangerous choppy waters. And it used to be known as the Cape of Storms. That was how it was named. But then a Portuguese sailor, a Portuguese sailor went beyond this point to India, actually, quite a bit beyond, and came back again to tell the story. And its name was changed in this next photo here, you can see, to the Cape of Good Hope. Changed everything. This sailor had gone beyond and come back to tell the story. And the Christian hope is exactly that, that there is one person in history who is qualified to do that with death. One person who's gone through death and come back again from the cold. And because Jesus gets through death, all who put their trust in him have an inheritance of eternal life. His resurrection is the pledge for, for our resurrection, we could say. That's why Peter writes of a, of a living hope that can never perish spoil of fate. And this does many things, many implications. Let me just draw out two. First of all, it, it gives a hope amidst trials that this life throws at us. Verse six of the passage, I don't know if you saw that there. It says, all, in all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter, the guy who's writing, he's realistic about what life is like. Because we do face trials, don't we, of, of all sorts and all types. Some of us will know that. Some of us will know in life the kind of big trials, big suffering that we face. Maybe redundancy, a conflict with family members, um, losing family members. Maybe some have experienced that recently. We know trials in the big things, but also in the, the kind of nitty-gritty everyday thing. You know, we're, we go for a job interview and, and the train doesn't come when we really needed it to come. Or, or we have a child who's, you know, we really just want them to sleep. And at four o'clock in the, the night, they don't want to sleep and they keep crying. Not speaking, of course, from personal experience there at all. We can have trials that are big and small in our lives. But actually, Peter says here that Verse 6, these things just last for a little while, just for a little bit. In the grand scheme of eternity, of eternal life, these things last for a little while, and that gives us hope for the future. So when a relationship breaks up or breaks down, 
or when we try and buy somewhere in London on the housing market but are depressed as we look at the price of property again, or when our job is just a bit mundane or boring or dull. This gives the Christian perspective that there is a future hope that, it, that enables us to face anything that life throws at us now. And people here at Trinity can testify. You can ask them about what that looks like. It gives hope in its trials. Another little thing, it gives hope for eternal life, a wonderful eternal life. You've probably heard the joke, maybe you've made it yourself, that well, eternal life, you know, if, if a church service is an hour or a bit, you know, an hour and a bit long and, you know, that feels pretty hard to sit through, uh, you know, for an hour or so, what's eternal life going to be like? Do I really want that? Like maybe you know, a few of you are feeling that now. Is this something that I really want? Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> well, a lot of the ways we've seen or heard and eternal life expressed is quite simply wrong. <laughs> and actually a book came out this week and I just shared a quote from it. I thought this was rather good. It says, eternal life isn't all harps and halos. It's about being more human, perfectly human, in a beautiful and perfect physical world, enjoying one another, enjoying creation, and enjoying God. Sounds a bit better, doesn't it? That's more biblical in the way that eternal life is spoken about. No fluffy clouds, but, but physical, relational, real, where we never have to fear losing loved ones, never have to fear death itself. Well, if that's the nature of hope, we need to ask about the evidence, don't we, for it? that hope is based as i said on the resurrection of jesus christ we need to know that that is credible that it's not just fairy tale and kind of something to make us feel nice and uh, and happy today i don't want to be the kind of person that that sort of uh, doesn't believe things that aren't that aren't true and i'm sure you don't want to be that kind of person as well and the good news is that this is not emotional manipulation but actually this is based on Jesus' own resurrection in real history. That's back on page 1089, uh, just as we briefly look at chapter 20 in John's Gospel. I don't know if you picked up in, uh, it's funny that Tom was reading about Thomas. Thomas was reading about Thomas. But uh, the guy in that story, Thomas, you probably know him as Doubting Thomas. That's kind of how he's been remembered. Maybe you've used that phrase. And he's someone of a very skeptical bent, Doubting Thomas. So the other disciples at this point, they had seen Jesus risen again. They had seen him, but Thomas hadn't. And look to see what he says in, in verse 25. Maybe you would say this as well. Halfway through verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Maybe he had seen a few of the miracles earlier on in Jesus' life and been pretty impressed by that, but someone coming back from the grave? Nah, no way, Jose. That was kind of his reaction, his attitude towards it. Yet Jesus, a week later, comes into the room and verse 27 says this. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The skeptic believes. Imagine that moment seeing that, being there. And Jesus says something to Thomas, but did you notice when it was being read out, he says something to, to us as well in verse 29. Jesus told him, 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the thing I love about this is rather than just kind of leaving your brain at the door when you enter into a church, (laughs) actually we're told to examine the evidence. This is historically formidable evidence of the resurrection. Because remember, if Jesus did rise again, it changes everything. It gives us the kind of hope that can face anything. So we need to ask the question, did it happen? Did he rise again? Let me show you briefly three, three E's for this. First of all, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. At the beginning of chapter 20, uh, we see Mary Magdalene. She was the first to go and anoint his body. Yet she was shocked because the, the tomb, the stone, had been rolled away. And it was empty. And, and she was shocked. He would be. And people have said, well, didn't Jesus's, didn't Jesus's mates just kind of, didn't they just kind of steal the body, fake the resurrection? Uh, they, these guys had been following Jesus around. Surely they had egg on their face and they needed to come up with a kind of story that would convince people. How might we answer that? Three things on that. One, they couldn't have moved the body because there were guards outside of the tomb. Two, their dreams of the disciples had been shattered. Their best mate had just died. They weren't in the mood for pranks and hoaxes. And three, these disciples, they were willing to die on the account of the resurrection. The disciples were told were stoned and beaten. Some of them even crucified. Would you do that for something that didn't happen? Surely one of them would have caved in. The empty tomb. The second E, the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. That's always important, isn't it? With evidence. And we're told that Mary had seen him first. And then in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 20, we see the other disciples meet him. Then Thomas, as we've heard about. The book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament says that over 500 people saw the risen Jesus. They saw him alive. And what's more is that book of 1 Corinthians, it was, it was penned, it was written down around 20 years after the resurrection happened. That's like something happening in the millennium, in the year 2000, and someone today penning that writing. Historically, that's very, very close to the event. But people say, well, maybe, maybe they were just hallucinating. Maybe, you know, when you grieve, you, you sort of think, you know, come on, uh, I, I thought I saw him. Maybe if it was one or two people, that might be an argument. Maybe 500. Another said, maybe people who are a bit more gullible sort of back in the day, back then. But remember, none of these people were expecting the resurrection. Mary wasn't. Empty team eyewitnesses, what about the explosive growth? The explosive growth. Just uh, the last verse I'll get you to look at. Just, um, it's so good. Verse uh, 19 of chapter 20. We're told that the disciples at this point were together with the doors locked. They were fearing what was going on. Yet then throughout the rest of the Bible, these timid, cowering disciples suddenly were emboldened to share this message. And actually, it's worth knowing that becoming a Christian in the ancient world was a a pretty terrifying thing to do. It wasn't easy. There was state-led persecution against Christianity. But but Christianity, it, it didn't just survive it thrived. And so at the end of the first century, it seems there were about 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. At the end of the second century, 
there were around 200,000. And by 250 AD, there were over a million Christian believers in the Roman Empire. What explains that? Well, 1 Peter says that they had a hope, a hope found in the resurrection of Jesus. They were willing to suffer for a little while the trials because they knew their inheritance. Way more could be said about this now, but it's worth just quoting a guy called Sir Edward Clark. He was a former High Court judge, and he said this. He says, as a lawyer, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence of the events of the resurrection. The evidence is conclusive. Over and over in the High Court, I've secured a verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The evidence points towards Jesus Christ rising again from the grave. And maybe you think, Nathan, I'm an intelligent person. People don't come back. Miracles, maybe, but this? No, surely not. Maybe I can believe in it metaphorically, not literally. What can I say to you? Don't, don't be so close-minded to reject the evidence without engaging it, without looking at it yourself. Because when considering if Christianity is true, it all boils down to this question, did Jesus rise again? I wonder if you've ever looked into that yourself, whether you've ever read one of the, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's copies of them at the back of church, you're free to take those away with you. I wonder if you ever read that as an adult. Way too much is at stake to ignore that. And as we've seen, if Jesus did rise again from the grave, it changes everything. It gives a kind of hope that can face anything that life throws at you. Shining hope in the midst of the world's darkness. Let me finish with this. Uh, many of us know and love Claire and Ante uh, at church. And Claire, just over a year ago, um, it was that her, her brother Andy died very tragically. Um, he had been fighting cancer, and it seemed to maybe at the first stage just be, be going okay, going well. And he deteriorated and died of, of liver cancer, only aged 33. Tragic. And we, we mourned with her, with Claire, and we cried with her. We, um, we said with her, death is wrong. Uh, it's a great enemy. It really is. Yet Andy didn't die without hope. He faced death with confidence, knowing Jesus. In his last few months, years, he had confidence in the face of death, knowing that he would be with Jesus, not because he had lived a sort of perfectly good and moral life, but because he had made a decision to receive salvation, rescue as a gift from God. He knew that God in his great mercy had, had given him a new birth, a new living hope, an inheritance that could never perish, spoil or fade. Andy had found the kind of hope, even in death, that could face anything. I wonder if you found that hope. Let me leave this in a prayer. Father, as we've um, thought about this 
question today. There's much more that could be said. There's more than I, I could say, and uh, other people could say it better, I'm sure. But thank you that in, in the Bible here, in these passages, and in other ones that we haven't looked at, it does provide a living hope, the kind of hope that we need deep down. Lord, some of us here, life is, is going really well. Uh, we feel young, we feel fighting fit. Uh, others, others of us will be struggling. We'll feel that we're growing old or know others um, who are facing death. And I thank you that the Bible provides this kind of solid, watertight hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that we wouldn't leave here without thinking about that more, wanting to engage in it on a personal level. And thank you that there is a hope that will never perish or spoil or fade. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.